Hello, Central Coast. Welcome to Solutions News. I'm your host, Ronaldo Brutico. And today, we're talking about reliability, safety, and resilience of our electrical grid. How it's not working so well right now, and it needs to work a whole lot better for us to be safe. How might, how might we cure our state's current power problems in a way that gets us off fossil fuels, addresses environmental and economic injustice, and also builds resilient communities across our state? That's the question, and it turns out the answer is simple. We have the technology, we have the know-how, we even have the resources. All we lack is the political will. Well, we're thrilled today to welcome Lorenzo Christoph as our guest. Dr. Christoph is the leading independent consultant focusing on power system transition to integrate higher levels of renewable generation, that's green energy, and distributed energy resources, or DERs. For most of the 2000s, he was the lead designer at the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO, which manages the California grid. He later led initiatives to redesign the transmission planning process and the new generator interconnection process to accommodate rapid growth of renewable energy projects triggered by California's renewable portfolio standards. Since then, he has focused on integrating distributed energy resources into the CAISO markets and through the grid operations and has led CAISO's engagement in California Public Utility Commission proceedings dealing with distributed energy resources. He also participates for CAISO in national forums on electric system evolution. He has a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Manhattan College, a master's in statistics from North Carolina State University, and a PhD in economics from the University of California at Davis. He's truly one of the visionary leaders in the field of grid systems design, and we are very excited to share his wisdom with our audience today and to share a lot of the work that he's done over the years and together with his co-author in many cases over at Caltech, Dr. Paul Martini. So we are really thrilled to have uh, Dr. Christoph with us today. He'll be joining us in just a few minutes. But first, Christy wants to make a few announcements and then let's talk about how we fix the grid in California and beyond. Thanks so much, Ronaldo, and thank you everybody for listening. And I, I like how you always say Christy wants to do this, but yes, this is <laughs> part of our part of what we need to do on the show. Just to remind everybody that the program itself is a production of the World Business Academy. And the World Business Academy is a nonprofit think tank and action incubator located here in Santa Barbara that's focused on the role that business can and should play in solving humanity's largest challenges, like for example our electrical systems and how to make them greener and more resilient and build them for the future. Our sponsors include Garlic Gold, so they provide a, a, an array of delicious organic condiments and The Optimist Daily, a free positive news service delivering solutions news to your inbox every weekday. There will be some important information that we're going to be offering on today's show, so if you have any follow-up questions or to find out how you can support Solutions News, email us at solutions at worldbusiness.org or send us a note via the website, solutionsnews.org. All right, Ronaldo. so let's talk about resiliency, reliability, safety, and how to build a greener future with our electric grid. Well, our first story today is called Wind, Wires, and Fire. You might not know how these three all fit together, but listen up and you're soon to find out. You see, it's not a secret that the devastating campfire that destroyed Paradise, California, was caused by sparking from PG&E's high-voltage transmission lines that run through all sorts of backcountry and forests in Northern California. Unfortunately, that tragedy is but one of dozens and dozens of fires started from high-voltage transmission lines, which, by definition, often run through forests and remote backcountry terrain. According to Cal Fire, electrical lines were responsible for 40% of all the acreage destroyed in the last decade. 
In fact, they also calculated that over 2,000 electrically originated fires were started between 2015 and 2019. 2,000 just in that four-year period. As absolutely as every informed government official knows, there's literally no way to stop these fires from emerging as long as we cling to a statewide grid as our means of providing electricity to California's 40 million residents. It's bad enough that we can't stop lightning strikes, but to know that having high power transmission lines crisscrossing the state will cause many more fires in the future is simply unacceptable. You see, when the wind blows, lines can bang into each other and spark off into dry tinder bush. There are other ways these lines cause fires, including spontaneous combustion of line transformers and various other components of the lines. Yes, if we had high voltage transmission lines, we will inevitably be plagued with continuing fires every forest fire season, which in California is now almost year round. That's unacceptable. But before getting to the solution, because this is Solutions News, we also need to look at the vulnerability of the electrical grid to sabotage, which can occur very easily by a single terrorist, given how remote these transmission lines are. Bring one tower down and the entire line will fail. Of course, the ability to hack the grid by domestic or foreign enemies is also a well-known threat to our entire electrical system. On top of those incredible liabilities, California is now dealing with a continuous series of rolling blackouts affecting millions of people as a result of what are called public safety power shutoffs, or PSPS. These PSPS events are unilaterally being preemptively created by PG&E and Southern California Edison whenever the temperature rises high enough, which happens very frequently in this climate change era. They shut down to avoid the possibility of an electrical fire being triggered in the backcountry. According to Governor Newsom, we can expect these rolling blackouts to continue for a minimum of nine years or longer. Is that acceptable on any level? Are we willing to pay that price, not to mention the tens of billions we fork over every year to PG and Edison to, quote, reimburse, close quote, them for lines we already paid for once but then have to be replaced after a forest fire? And look at the billions more in damages we have to pay to all the unfortunate residents who sustain the loss of life and property from these constant fires. All of this is accepted in supporting a system that was invented in the 1880s in New York and has not yet been replaced. And as we learned the hard way in 2003, a single squirrel could bring the entire power grid for 50 million people in the Northeast and Midwest, bring it down by triggering a spontaneous circuit overload condition that trips circuit breakers up and down the line. That was one crazy squirrel, 50 million people affected. So enough is enough. What can we do to replace the high voltage transmission lines with something that can serve all California residents? One, without catching fire. Two, is not subject to a single terrorist act. Three, can't ever be hacked. Four, won't require us to ever again sustain a PSPS. And five, can't fail even if a squirrel goes crazy. The answer has an additional hidden benefit. The system that will replace high voltage lines will cost less to create and maintain than merely maintaining the existing system. What is this miracle solution called? It's called an interconnected microgrid network that requires no transmission lines to operate. Let's start explaining the solution by looking back in history. 1880s in Manhattan, Alexander Graham Bell famously asked, Watson, can you hear me? After making the world's first telephone call over a single copper wire. From that day until 1970, it was, quote, accepted wisdom, close quote, that you had to connect telephones by wire in order to get them to operate. In 1970, however, we discovered cell phone technology, which took the limited phone system of the time, which only had 25% of the global population connected to phones, to where today we have 98% of all citizens on the globe actually have a telephone all over the 
entire planet. The smallest farmer in India can find out what to bring to market and how much to charge by using that cell phone. Everyone knows cell phone technology has revolutionized communications and human civilization itself. We just had to realize that the copper wire that started it all had to be replaced by electromagnetic radiation passing through the air. You see, that original copper wire that was essential for the first phone call to occur became the enemy of widespread telephone service. The need to have a wire prevented that Indian farmer from ever having a phone because no wire was ever going to get to his village. Also in the 1880s, in the same city of Manhattan, there was a vigorous dispute between Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla also over a wire. Edison wanted to power the emerging electrical market using direct current with small power plants located close together, actually within urban areas, direct current being many, many multiples more efficient than alternating current. Tesla wanted to build a massive power plant in Brooklyn where he assumed no one would ever see it and bring the power to Manhattan with high-voltage transmission wires. Tesla won the battle, and Brooklyn became the source of massive amounts of centralized power, and that wire brought it all to Manhattan. Just like Bell's copper telephone wire, the wire Tesla created became the limiting factor in getting electrical energy widely dispersed around the globe. You see, that Indian farmer was never going to get a telephone landline, and his village is still waiting for the electrical wire to show up. It hasn't, and it never will. It makes no practical engineering or economic sense to bring that wire to every place of human habitation. The transmission wire has become the limiting factor two ways. There are billions of people who will not have one arrive at their village ever. And two, for those unlucky enough to get one, they will also get forest fires, the risk of terrorism, the risk of being hacked, enormous economic disadvantages. Oh yeah, and another crazy squirrel might just bring it all down anyway. The high voltage transmission line is the enemy, particularly because continued reliance on distant massive power generating units is so uneconomical and is the biggest single factor slowing our transition to a 100% green economy. The solution is to stop purchasing or building any more high-voltage wires anywhere in the world and to start immediately to build interconnected microgrids. A picture to hold in your mind is that of a honeycomb, where each side of each comb is attached to a neighbor comb. Think of these combs as self-sufficient generators and users of the electricity needed to operate society on a local basis. Each one is called a DER. The home I live in has a specially designed solar system, which is the backbone of my freestanding domestic microgrid that is totally able to island itself away from grid power indefinitely. And my monthly energy bill for a very large property with two major habitable structures, extensive gardens, and quite an active life is only 39 cents a month. The system we designed at the World Business Academy and presented to the California Public Utilities Commission is one that would span from Ventura, California to Goleta, California, which is a significant population area that has a requirement of up to 250 to 300 megawatts identified every single solar cell we would use and the precise location of each of those cells to collectively create a microgrid of 350 megawatt capacity. How do microgrids advance the cause of green energy? Simple. They solve the old question of, quote, what are you going to do when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, question mark. The answer is you electrize all of that cheap energy into hydrogen with on-site storage and you run it through fuel cells as needed to create power for the microgrid. And in those rare instances where one microgrid goes down, neighbor microgrids will be able to port power from one microgrid to another without any high voltage transmission lines being required. Best of all, in those cases of rural microgrids where there may be no contiguous microgrid to draw power from, plenty of hydrogen would be available less than an hour away by truck in every location in California, which can use that hydrogen to power the microgrid fuel cells until the locally originated electricity can be restored. Microgrids are the answer to resilience. 
They are the answer for how to immediately stop forest fires. They are the answer of how to get ourselves free of the monopolies run by PG and Edison, which keep our prices high, our forests on fire, and block the full deployment of green energy sources, even as we mothball one fossil fuel plant after another. There is no future for the grid in California. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we will get to 100% green energy. We'll be getting deeper into microgrids with our guest today, Dr. Lorenzo Christoph. And by the way, that 350 megawatt microgrid we submitted to the CPUC as an alternative to building a 350 megawatt peaker plant in Oxnard was successful. Both the Public Utilities Commission and the California Energy Commission agreed we shouldn't build any more centralized power generating peaker plants until they fully investigate our microgrid solution. There's no turning back. We're finally getting that high voltage wire under control and unlocking the green energy future the planet demands. With that, Christy, let's take a short break and come right back with our guest, Lorenzo Christoph. Imagine the hundreds of messages you hear every day subtly changing the way you think about the world. If these messages are negative or divisive, your outlook can become increasingly negative. Well, we've got an antidote. It's called Optimist Daily. It's a free service. Its mission is to find and send you positive solutions-oriented news stories, real stories, every morning in less than two minutes that will focus you on a positive worldview. Sign up for free at OptimistDaily.com. You'll be amazed how much more light will shine into your world. Central Coast. Welcome back to Solutions News on KZSB, 1290 AM. This is your host, Ronaldo Brutico, and I can't wait to now get to our guest, who you've heard, is Lorenzo Christoph. Lorenzo and I go back a number of years when he was one of the principal PhDs guiding the future of the electrical grid system here in California for the California Independent System Operator. Has uh, just retired from that position not long ago and is acting now. He's guiding the future of the electrical grid system here in California for the California Independent System Operator has uh, just retired from that position not long ago and is acting now as a consultant for electric system policy, structure, and, and, and market design. So with that, Lorenzo, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ronaldo. Great to be talking with you again, and thank you for the invitation to participate. You bet, because, um, Lorenzo, you know, this, this period of time uh, couldn't have been more graphically useful to your work and mine than... Anything I can imagine because of the rolling blackouts and the predicted power shutoffs and the complete chaos in the PG&E, Southern California Edison shared oligopoly, which is our electrical system here in California. And it seems to me the time for that breakthrough thinking like you've been espousing for a number of years is here more than ever. What's your experience? Are people warming up to the ideas of locally generated power? Absolutely. I think there's a lot more enthusiasm. It's been growing in recent years, um, but certainly COVID gave it a boost in a way. Um, the public safety power shutoffs gave it a boost. And before that, the wildfires that started back in 2018. What I think is the main problem now is getting the institutional structure to come along because we have an industry structure, including the regulators and the investor-owned utilities and um, many of the big institutions uh, and legal structures that are based on uh, a 20th century power system, which is large large central power stations and large transmission moving over long distances and customers at the end who are just consumers. And the, that whole landscape is changing, but we've got to work on the institutional structure, particularly the regulations and the laws. 
Well, you, you know, you, you were talking about the power shutoffs even in 2019, but <clears throat> my daughter lives in the Bay Area. She's yeah. been sustaining power outages, planned power outages for the last two and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. And I understand from the governor that he doesn't know how he's going to stop that in the next nine or 10 years. And I don't think that's an acceptable conclusion. So isn't it time for us to go to locally generated energy instead of bringing in through these long distance transmission lines? Yeah, I think that will be a gradual transformation because I don't think the long distance transmission lines will go away immediately. It's a big piece of infrastructure that's going to be around and still has some usefulness, but we can predominantly move to the a system of locally generated power systems designed to meet local needs. And and what's even more to me beneficial from doing that is that it's not just about local resilience, which is important, but also decarbonization can be accomplished through local initiatives. We can have greater societal equity through uh, creating local employment opportunities and local economic benefits from building local power systems. So there's a whole range of benefits that can come from this transformation into a more decentralized and locally based power system. You know, in that social justice component that you just alluded to, in the select committee, which we just did an interview last week of Congresswoman Julia Brownlee about the Congressional Select Committee on the Climate Change Crisis, one of the things they touched on was the social justice issue can be addressed by the creation of new jobs and new opportunities in previously disadvantaged communities, which typically in a hierarchical structure like we currently have always end up with the short end of the stick. So that, that particular uh, idea actually has just gotten currency last week when they issued their report. But I want to go into something really fundamental. I want you to explain to people, why is it these high-powered transmission lines that run through backwoods, why do they start fires? How does that happen? Well, basically, one of the things that wires do is create heat because it's the fundamental idea that you have resistance when you're moving electrical energy through um, a piece of wire or a conductor. So one is that they're creating heat. Another is that there are lots of connections along the way. It's not like one complete wire that goes from one point to another. There are conductors, there are different types of devices on the systems that can, under certain circumstances, if they haven't been properly maintained, create sparks. And I think the cases that we saw in 2019 in California were basically instances of some of these devices that are on the on poles that that support the transmission wires, creating sparks that then if they go through wooded areas where there's, when it's been very dry and you have a lot of dry material, those sparks can easily start a fire in the same way that a lightning strike can. Yeah, actually uh, an engineer for Edison told me that in, in high wind conditions, two otherwise separate transmission lines can slap together. Uh-huh. And then the, with the heat, and th- that, that alone could crack through the, the rubber shielding and create a spark. Just, yeah. just, just the high wind together with it. And, and why I'm raising that is because I don't know what we can do about lightning strikes, dry lightning, which is we've never had before in California and was the source of these last few weeks of terrible uh, infernos. But we do have a choice on avoiding fires that are started by transmission lines. And we know that a great number of the fires are started that way. So what you're talking about, just to explain it to the listeners, you're talking about creating electricity where it's used locally. Yes, that's right. right. 
Yes. So we won't have to move it across the forest. We just make it and use it right on the spot. Yeah, that certainly is a possibility. So the, the electric power system as a whole, the big uh, network of, of the US, in the U.S., it was a 20th century design, and it, it basically was based on the assumption that if you want electricity, you have to get it from this grid. You have to get it from this massive infrastructure. That's the only place because it's produced in these large power plants. We don't want them close to load centers, so they're usually in remote locations, and then we have to move the power over long distances. But with the development of new technologies now, what we call distributed energy resources or DER, that's a buzzword word in, in the industry now, but basically it means any kind of electrical facilities that are attached close to where the consumers are on the electric distribution wires or even on customer premises. And these are devices that can produce energy like rooftop solar on your roof. They can store energy like battery storage. They have control systems that can manage the load inside a building so that you are managing the time of day that you're consuming or you can reduce loads if you need to. So all of those things are infinitely scalable. You can have a local energy system that's the size of uh, an individual house or you can have one that's the size of uh, an entire campus or a commercial building. So the scalability means that you can tune uh, local systems exactly to meet what the local needs are. And that, that islanding of, of a, a single house or a larger aggregation of contributors and users is what's called a microgrid, right? Yeah, so islanding, islanding is, is a, a property, is a term used to describe the ability of uh, a local power system to completely separate from the grid and continue to provide power, or it can function in connected mode. And this is a lot of where the work is going on today, is to look at the value of both modes in what we call island mode the little local system is separating from the power grid and operating on its own, providing local energy. Uh, whereas when it's connected to the grid, it has capabilities that can actually provide grid services and help provide uh, uh, grid operation and uh, uh, more reliable service. For example, things like the power shutoffs we had on August 14th, if we had microgrids that were operating at that time, they could be supplying excess power to the grid to avoid having to shut off customers, or they could take load off the grid and provide local supply and not rely on the grid. So the dynamics of how you actually operate the system start to change with uh, the addition of microgrids. Yeah, my, my house, I designed... Uh three plus years ago as a island microgrid, uh -huh. uh, but a connected one. And I did that on purpose to see what I overproduce, which I do. So my total electrical bill on average each month is around 30 cents, which is, uh, I don't know how they get that number, but I overproduce. So they end up owing me money, but they pay me nothing. My over, well, very, they pay me very little on the overproduction, as you know. And the reason that I mention this to people is when it goes into cutoff mode, which I have been several times now, my, my system kicks in, 
-hmm. I don't ever miss anything, including my air conditioning on a hot August day. And as soon as this grid is back up and operational, my system kicks back in again. Well, I would love it if I had five neighbors doing the same thing. And we could. We could all tap together if the utilities would stop fighting it, correct? Well, we do need to change the rules to enable that to happen. We, right. It is quite possible to create, say, a local community microgrid, might, which might be a subdivision. In Oakland, there's this fabulous pilot project that was funded by the CEC called EcoBlock. And the idea is to retrofit a typical urban city block, you know, surrounded by four streets, rectangular with 20-something houses and other buildings on it, and create a microgrid on that unit. So this exists as a pilot program. The regulations and the state laws don't allow those kinds of things to be replicated yet. So a, a really important need to be able to realize this vision of more decentralized energy, more resilient energy, and local benefits really requires changes at the legislative level and in the regulatory framework. Which I understand, by the way, are going to be hot on the docket to be discussed in Sacramento after this next election when we see what happens in the smoke clears. I, I, and I mean that metaphorically and actually. Right. Lorenzo, you must have had a lot of smoke this year. Where you are. We did. Well, fortunately, where I live at Davis, California, we were not in the direct line of, of the fire itself, although it was 15 to 20 miles away from us uh, in Vacaville. So it's not that far. And we definitely had smoke and particles in the air that were over our place for many days. And the air quality is still uh, questionable. But there were a couple of days when it was really, really thick and dense. That's what I heard. And yet, I understand that solar systems operated with reduced efficiency, but were perfectly capable of operating in those conditions, is what I understand. They, they do operate, but they're definitely reduced output. Reduced yeah. output. Now, you, you, I just want to touch real quickly before the break. Tell us what resiliency means. I hear this word all the time. We want to have resilient energy. What does that mean to the public, Lorenzo? Well, the way we're using the term, it's been used in a lot of different ways. And one of my pet beefs in industry conversations is that nobody really agrees on the definition. But the way I use it is the ability to sustain a service when there's disruptive events happening. In other words, it's not just simply that you have an outage and then you bring it back online quickly. It's really more that the system has the flexibility to be able to adapt to the disruptive event. So a power shutoff or a fire that takes out a transmission line, the adaptation would be for this local power system to be able to separate from the grid and not not depend on it. And we use the word resilient because there are multiple dimensions to resilience or resiliency in a community, which includes things like pumping sewage and water supply and telecommunications and first responders and the need for mobility. And electricity supports all of those. So if you don't have, if, if you don't have resilient electric supply, then you can't power all these other things which are essential for the community. Okay, well, we're going to have to take a quick break, but we certainly want to hear about how we're going to keep that sewage moving if you're more resilient, because the last <laughs> thing we want is a backup. And with that, let's go to our break. Well, hello, universe, and welcome to the Optimist Daily Update. I'm Christy Jansen. And I'm Summers McKay. We're bringing you reader-funded solutions news every day. We are sharing these solutions in a commute-worthy, walk-worthy, home office-worthy podcast. We share solutions on everything from green energy to impact investing, building community, and even baby animal births. 
Optimus Daily is not about rose-colored glasses. It is about the reality. And the reality is that we are where we are and there are solutions and things that can be done to chart a better path. We also have captivating guests like social justice advocate Akila Shirelles and self-identified soil health geek Ethan Steinberg. Agroforestry, maybe one of the ways to think about it, either bringing the agriculture to the forest or bringing the forest to the agricultural field. And as an added bonus, you get to hear hilarious tales from behind the scenes and can't miss stories. Of course, we think they're hilarious, but you can listen and judge for yourselves. Sorry, Amelia, talking about the cat again. (laughs) Tune into the Optimus Daily Update on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Hello, Central Coast. Welcome back to Solutions News. I'm your host, Ronaldo Brutico, here at KZSBAM 1290 with our guest, Lorenzo Kristoff, and the work he's been doing for many years trying to get us better, more reliable, resilient energy. With that, Lorenzo, you were talking about resilience and the need for uh, us to be able to keep the electricity going for all these vital things, cell towers, literally sewage pumps, literally having the whole infrastructure we depend on, which can be done more at the community level. So, Give me a definition. Is that what you mean by community energy? What does that mean? Uh, Good question. There are lots of flavors of community. And in a way, the the word community can be misleading because people use it to apply to all kinds of things. A community of stamp collectors, for example. But Mm -hmm. I use community, and I think we need to use it in a way that designates a specific place. And the place is defined geographically. It could be a neighborhood. It could be an entire city, say, or it can be a section of a city. So there are different ways to do it. And as I mentioned earlier, with distributed electricity and local power systems, they're completely scalable. So you can do things that are on the side of size of, say, a city block. And that's a community energy system but it's very local. You could do things in a, in a neighborhood, which is maybe two or 300 houses in a subdivision or even retrofitting a residential neighborhood. You could call that a community, but you know, in, in more common language, it's a neighborhood. When you get to municipal services like sewage and, and water supply, those things, the community then is the whole city because the city is responsible for the municipal services. So think of community as a, as a kind of uh, a balloon that can expand to meet what well, the need is. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because we were invited when we were, when we were opposing the construction of a new power plant, a gas power plant on the Oxnard Plain at the ocean we were forced to submit to the PUC a specific drawing showing how we could accumulate 350 megawatts of solar in the area affected, i.e. in the load pocket, from Ventura to Santa Barbara. And we produced such a map. Uh, The Public Utilities Commission at first did not want to look at it. Fortunately, the California Energy Commission forced them to do so. And as a result, the we did stop that peaker plant. The reason I'm mentioning this is because that the way that was designed to get to 350 megawatts is we literally did it, you know, five megawatts here, two megawatts there, a megawatt here, kilowatts there. And, and our, our motto was every kilowatt on your roof is one less kilowatt I got to worry about. Mm-hmm. And the aggregate community impact of that was we were able to demonstrate we could put all the power necessary from Ventura all the way up to Goleta without building another power plant and doing it with 100% interconnected 
local community resources. Now, yeah. that withstood the, the scrutiny of the California Energy Commission. So it's, it's doable. Why is it not happening, Lorenzo? Why are we, what's holding this up? Well, right now, there really is no regulatory framework for how you do a community microgrid. And let me explain what I mean by that. So you described your house, Ronaldo, and what you did at your house to create your own microgrid. Right. But that's a single property. We'll call that a single user microgrid because you have one connection to the utility and you have one meter and everything behind that meter is your property. When you get to what we call a community microgrid, I sometimes call that a multi-user microgrid because now you have lots of different customers who are all part of that local system and you have resources like solar. Some of them are behind the meter on somebody's roof. Others may be on a parking garage. Others may be directly connected to the grid. So in a community type microgrid, what happens is you have all of these privately owned electrical resources, but you're using the utilities distribution wires to connect them all. And yeah. so you can actually infill into current cities tremendous amount of uh, resources and support, you know, have the load just right there. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think we need to get into the technology, no. the specific technology, in order to make the point that with these distributed resources, what we used to call consumers now become participants. Yes, in the exactly. Grid. That, right. that, and that's I really that. the way I wanted to yeah. reframe that because, yeah. you know, the, the 20th century vision, they're just consumers at the other end and all they do is turn switches on and off and they consume. But now there actually can be participants who are supporting grid operation and adding value to the grid. And because of that relationship, the distribution utility, PG&E or Southern California Edison, they have a role to play as a kind of partnership to the community in order to enable that microgrid to function. And right now, we don't have the regulatory rules for how that's supposed to work. They just well, I, don't exist. And that's, that's actually a little generous, I think, uh, Lorenzo. I mean, isn't it the truth that the the shared oligopolies, which in this state are three primary oligopolies. One is uh, PG&E, which has a monopoly territory. Edison, which has a monopoly territory. And, and San Diego Gas Electric has a monopoly territory. The three monopolies together pretty much control the shared oligopoly called the state of California's electrical system. And they're not playing ball. They're doing everything they can to block microgrids. They're, they're using their, their, their rights to stop people from connecting between two houses if they cross a single city street. I mean, don't we have to do something politically to rein in the power of these organizations, which are over 100 years old and seem to be running the state for their benefit rather than ours? Well, I think, you know, how this plays out for the communities that want to do it is the fact that there is no way to navigate the regulatory system to build what it is that they want. Now, I agree with you that it should start with legislation that directs some transformations in how the companies do business. One of the legacies of the 20th century is the way they earn profits is based on building big infrastructure and earning a guaranteed rate of return on that. There are no real performance incentives that affect their compensation. That needs to become part of it. But more to the point, point here, they're 
it's never been part of their role to help local communities create local power systems. So they need that direction coming from the legislature to say, we're changing your mission. If you want to continue to exist as a distribution company, fine, we want you to run that wire system and you can continue to do that. But we've got to redefine how you operate to create what Nancy Skinner called in her bill that, that we worked on last year, earlier this year, SB 1240, that the distribution utility should become an open access platform, that they're providing this infrastructure as a platform that enables all third parties to participate, to partner with local governments, to work with communities and neighborhoods, to allow growth of distributed resources and microgrids. And it's a substantial change in the utilities mission that I think needs to come from the legislature. Well, the truth is, it, people complain a lot in this country about K Street in Washington, D.C., how lobbyists run the country for their benefit. And I think that's pretty clearly due. I would submit that the same thing happens in Sacramento, that the problem we have here is that Edison and PG&E are doing more to run the PUC than vice versa. And that political power base that they have amassed over 100 years and the economic base that they have has been the, th the single thing that's kept us from getting to 100% green energy. It's the single thing that's kept us from really building up microgrids. I, now, I take a very aggressive position on that because I think the utilities are the blocking force. And I want people to know they need to tell their assemblymen and their senators and their congresspeople, let's do this for what makes sense, not how do we line the pockets of PG&E, who is the only company. In the, in the United States that's been convicted of five felonies for harming the public welfare. So why would we continue to roll over? Why do we make it so that when they go bankrupt again, we rebuild again, we repay them more money? The political block here has got to be enormous. I don't want you to say something that will get you in trouble with your clients, Lorenzo, but isn't there something about citizens getting activated here to demand a different mindset in Sacramento and Washington? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm fond of saying nobody's going to give us democracy. If we want <laughs> it, we have to create it, That's you know, right. and that means people getting involved. So this notion that I mentioned about the power system viewing customers as consumers, they're simply out there switching lights on and consuming, you know, that really permeates much more of our culture, that we've had 100 years of advertising to convince us to be consumers. You need something to make your life better here, buy this. And it's unfortunate that many of us have slipped into that mindset of being consumers instead of being engaged citizens, engaged participants. And you're absolutely right. We need to see the demand rising from the communities, from the community-based organizations from the local governments, from all of these entities that are in the ground where real things happen and um, be demanding of their representatives in the legislature that they want the ability to do this. They want the ability to create local power systems and they want the legislature to provide the, the, the redefinition of the utility function that requires them to be collaborators to enable this to happen. So you're right. It, the, the, the demand needs to come from the bottom up just as much as we need the policy from the top down. I think so. Now, you'd sent us a, a PowerPoint, uh, Lorenzo, uh, for your presentation on August 26th, very current one. Would you be willing to share that with the public if they wanted to write us and get a copy of it? Yes, okay. absolutely. So anybody, 
and I can yeah. send you a link to the webinar if they want to listen to it. Please, yeah. So if they that. write info at worldbusiness.org, we'll get them this, a copy of this, and we'll also give them the link. But I wanted to refer to one page in that, which I, I really don't want to skip. And you have this great page called Why Community Energy, which we've been talking about, community mm -hmm. energy, why. And you say, quote, energy is needed for everything we do, and it is the primary cause of climate and ecosystem disruption. So we have three urgent missions, three. Sustainability. We got to stop making things worse and we got to replace fossil fuel to do it. Number two, resilience. We have to prepare for the impacts of damage already done and frankly keep the lights on when the grid goes down. And number three, equity. Environmental and economic justice clearly has to be baked into this new formula. I like that. And then you conclude with all missions require local action. Just speak to that for a minute because I think that's exactly right. It's the okay. local action that's going to bring this about, right? Yeah, and in all, in all three realms, starting with decarbonization, what I'm seeing is that it's, it's cities taking initiatives and thinking about climate impacts that are going to change some of the things they do. If you look at what happens in urban planning, they deal with things like zoning and land use and building codes, housing densification, locating development projects close to transit hubs, and, and things like that that affect the behavior that generates greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases come out of things like where people live relative to where they work, at least pre-COVID. You know, the commuting was a big portion of that, moving stuff over long distances. So to the extent that we can do in the realm of urban planning and county planning, greater localization and housing densification and so on, that will be a contributor to decarbonization. Resilience, the second part of that, is building the, the strength at the local level to be able to supply energy even when the grid goes down. And the impacts are always local. Whenever a hurricane or sure. a fire happens, it affects people where they live. It affects their houses, and it, it affects the ability of first responders to be able to do their jobs. And then finally, the equity piece of it is the local economic opportunities and benefits that come from building local power systems. One thing I didn't mention about the idea of neighborhoods is that we can, at least we have the knowledge of how, to uh, create local ownership models, cooperatives in neighborhoods where the power system that's serving that neighborhood locally, creating a local microgrid, that could be owned by a local enterprise where the people who are participants in that grid have an ownership share. So a whole lot of and social By the way, equity, Lorenzo, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Hawaii, the island of Kauai has been an uh, electrical cooperative separate from the rest of the island chain electrical system. And it has yes. been able to become more green quicker, has yes. been more resilient. Uh, it, it's clear it works when we just look at the examples we already have. I, I, I just would like to urge people to learn more about your work. We have to wrap this interview up today. What's the best way, Lorenzo, for them to hear more about what you're doing, either through the Climate Center or directly? Well, I would say, number one, go to the Climate Center. It's theclimatecenter.org. Uh, they're based in Santa Rosa, and I've been collaborating with them for uh, almost two years on some legislation to try and change the landscape for local energy. And they have a program there called Climate Safe California. There's a whole lot of literature on there as, as well. So I would start with uh, checking what they're doing. I do have a LinkedIn page. If you plug in my name on LinkedIn and I try to post 
documents that I write or webinars I participate in through my posting. So if you're interested in following up, you can view my page there. Well, in conclusion, just to want to wrap up by saying I've obviously known of your work intimately for many years now, and you are clearly one of the leading thinkers and doers in the state of California, which means in, in the country as a whole, because California is still leading in this area. So thanks for all you've done, Lorenzo, as a public servant initially, and now in your private capacity. I couldn't be more grateful for the work you've done. Thank you very much, Ronaldo. I appreciate that. And thank you for helping spread the word on our common causes here. You bet. All right. And with that, it's time for another break. Have you ever heard of garlic gold? If not, wow, are you in for a treat? As your neighbors can all tell you, it's fabulous. 100% extra virgin olive oil and organic garlic, that's all. Free of salt, sugar, and carbohydrates, this is a way to spark the dullest of steamed vegetables into a culinary explosion. Also great for chicken, lamb, beef, and fish. If you like garlic, you'll love garlic gold. Garlic gold is also available at Whole Foods, Gelson's Market, Sprouts, Erewhon, Natural Food Stores, and other fine retailers, as well as the garlicgold.com website. Enjoy. Welcome back, Central Coast. This is Solutions News with your host, Ronaldo Brutico, on KZSB 1290 AM. Uh, with a reminder, this program will be rebroadcast again tonight at 11, Saturday at 5, Sunday at 9, and don't forget, our podcast of this show comes out on Monday for those of us listening overseas. I'd like to end with a short example of how California microgrids stepped up during the mid-August rolling blackouts, delivering a reduction on grid load and providing backup electricity as extreme heat left the state short of power and PG&E put us all through those rolling blackouts. Stone Edge Farms microgrid and three other microgrids operated by Bloom Energy were among those that provided resiliency for their owners and community members on August 15th. Other microgrids, including those at Blue Lake Ranchera, Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, and a series of home microgrids like mine, some of which are operated by Ohm Connect, provided hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of kilowatt hours of much needed flexible load, and none of us who had one of those microgrids lost power for even more than a minute. Blue Lake Rancheria is a Humboldt County tribal facility that voluntarily moved two microgrids into island mode to free up power. Jenna Gagnon, Director of Sustainability and Government Affairs at Blue Lake, explained in a statement in microgridknowledge.com that Blue Lake Rancheria acted after PG&E and the California governor sent out a request for those who could to conserve and take demand for energy off the grid. Their response helped the state avert additional blackouts. Perhaps the microgrid that has seen the most coverage in the last few years is Stone Edge Farm, a 16-acre facility located in Sonoma, California. During the 2017 Tubbs fire in Sonoma County, which affected the power grid for weeks, Stone Edge Farm, a 16-acre plot including extensive gardens, vineyards, a home, and other buildings, which has built a state-of-the-art self-sustaining microgrid based on zero-carbon technologies, never lost power. Despite ash-filled skies as the fires around Northern California raged, their solar held up, as did their hydrogen conversion. In the three years since, as even more destructive fires and PG&E's power safety shutoffs have become more and more common, Stone Age Farms has become an exemplar of how the energy systems of the future will work. While other farms and businesses have limited ability to function without grid power, even with backup generators that can only run continuously for a few hours at a time and rely on external and polluting fuels like diesel, propane, or natural gas, Stone Age Farm can function fully as its own power supplier for weeks at a time. Stone Age Farm's microgrid can function in several different modes, including as an island disconnected from the public utility grid, which is PG&E, like, by the way, I do with my house, or they can supply their own energy sources to themselves, 
or they can reconnect to the grid and supply energy to the grid to supplement it as was recently done. The 16 acre Stone Age farm in Sonoma County become a major introduction to the futuristic vision of what can be achieved through developing a zero carbon microgrid with sustained power that's demonstrated between 2017 and today to be absolutely effective. The farm's owner, Mac McGowan, has built a team and a power system that intentionally looks at current trends and builds for the future. His system could power operations for days, even weeks if needed, and frankly, indefinitely if he's supplied with a hydrogen remote source. And once the regulatory systems in our state catch up to this type of innovating and starts investing in future-looking energy systems instead of building more of those darn wires that catch fire, people like McGowan and Stone Age Farms will be joined by others, like the EcoBlock project in Oakland that Lorenzo referred to, or perhaps a community microgrid supporting the Goleta Load Pocket that the World Business Academy and other local energy resilience advocates have been laying the groundwork for over the last eight years. We always end the show with a quote, and for today, I'm going to read a longish statement made by Mac McCowan himself, since it captures perfectly the opportunity that this moment presents and shows the kind of social responsibility that the Academy seeks to inspire in business leaders everywhere. Quoting Mr. McCowan, quote, our team at Stone Edge Farm has developed a way to capture solar energy and convert that to stored energy using both batteries and hydrogen electrolysis to power daily operations when the power goes out. Climate change has exasperated and will continue to exasperate the need for reliable, clean power. This is our motivation. In some ways, it might be unfortunate that we are at this point. However, there is an opportunity to take this challenge and build new infrastructure that not only deals with power shutoffs, but also contributes to the healing of the planet. That is the promise of microgrids. Thank you, Mr. McCown, for pointing it out. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Solutions News as we'll be back again with you next week.